Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Um, I'm Simon Glendinning. I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. I'm delighted to welcome you to these, uh, the third in the Forum's annual lectures. Now, it's a, a, a rather odd series, the Jean Monnet Lectures on Europe Beyond Governance. Um, obviously, the thought there is a, about a, approaching Europe or opening up thinking about Europe beyond questions of political governance. And I think there are probably two ways in which we're attempting to do this. The first is to ask questions about Europe's identity or ourselves as, as inhabitants of a European space, which in some way can't be reduced to a political thematization or a political analysis or a political theory or a political science, or in general a politicization even. It's absolutely not the case that we want to exclude any of those, but the questions that we want to raise are ones which would always take place at the margins or prior to such uh, political engagements. And another way of thinking about this thought of Europe beyond political governance or Europe beyond the political would be to ask questions about the emergence of a European space prior to a political project, particularly obviously prior to the current project of European Union politics. European Union politics certainly emerged in a political space but not a simply or exclusively political space and there was clearly a, an understanding of what it is to be European and an emergence of, an un, of, a, of, a, of a sense of being European prior to there being a European Union to which we were all uh, belonging as citizens and our feeling was that that originary sense or pre not not exactly pre-political but not reducible to the political sense of being European and of an opening up of a European space in which a European Union might make its way could helpfully be explored in three particular dimensions first of all in terms of something that we might call art Second, in terms of something that we certainly call and questionably call literature and something that we call and certainly calls itself into question as philosophy. So these three domains, which I'm sure aren't domains, but these three areas, um, these are all spaces in which something like Europe or the idea of Europe seems to occupy the imagination and our lives in advance of and perhaps informing any political project. So something like European art makes sense to us in some way independently of a political project. Something like European literature in some way makes sense to us. And obviously this is not as a, a kind of category of thought which exists outside history or which is uh, has uh, some kind of deeply homogenous um, characterization but nevertheless it's it's like it's not it's not simply unintelligible to talk about these things and 
Interestingly, it makes sense in advance of a political union. So, and the same with philosophy. So philosophy, or, uh, philosophy, art, and literature as three um, schemas for thinking about this idea of Europe beyond the political or beyond political governance. Last year, we had three lectures on the idea of art and the limits of the political. This year, we're looking at the relationship between literature and, well, I'm not sure, literature and history and memory, ultimately, in some way, intelligibly caught up with something like European memory. And next year, we'll be looking at issues around um, philosophy and the identity of Europe primarily in terms of a thought of Europe having some kind of original relationship to philosophy through, through the Greeks through a, a kind of um, project of thinking which would be beyond the national primarily and ultimately towards the human in, in Greek philosophy which would have formed a kind of uh, conceptual space in which an idea of, of, of European unity was first conceived. But today we've got um, Robert Eaglestone who's Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway concluding the, the second of the cycles on um, literature and this uh, thinking of the limits of the political. I'm not sure how Bob's going to take this up because it's up to him <laughs> and um, perhaps he'll explain a little bit at some point how he thinks it uh, relates to, to, our, to our wider things. But uh, you, your title, Memory Between Literature uh, and History? Very good. Bob Eagleston, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Um, okay, so this paper uh, is about, Simon talked about things that were European memory or European identity prior to politics, <coughs> or it's different from prior to politics, it's about that, um, and it, it's about, uh, the phrase Simon used, European memory. And also, of course, because it's the third of three, it relates to things that uh, Dan Stone said two weeks ago and that uh, Douglas Cowie said on Tuesday. So it tries to pull together some of those themes to think through issues of um, literature and of memory. <coughs> and while we're focusing on what memory in history, I hope it will become clear as, we, as I go through. Uh, and it's, there's three, it's in three sections. Uh, three seconds and an introduction. So here's the introduction. For a long time when I was a little boy and I went to bed early, I used to lie awake in bed, waiting for sleep, and challenge myself to think of a single part of the world not altered in some way by the Second World War. For a long time, I remember, I was satisfied with my answer to myself that trees in South America were <laughs> unaffected. But as I grew up and learnt about pollution, I realised that even tree rings in Tierra del Fuego, if there are trees in Tierra del Fuego, would carry the distant traces of dirt from shell fire and bombing by showing decreased growth as the sky was darkened by a tiny fraction. 
And then, of course, when I learned about radioactivity, background radiation, and so on, I realized that nothing really was the same as it had been before the atomic tests in New Mexico and the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And this was before I learned that the memory of the Second World War in Europe is less about buildings and trees, less about the easily material world, and more about religions, philosophies, political regimes, economic structures, religious or academic institutions. In short, as Derrida writes, what is just as confusedly called culture or the world of the spirit. It was also the discovery that, as Hannah Arendt wrote, the war meant that morality collapsed almost overnight and suddenly stood revealed in the original meaning of the word as a set of mores, customs and manners which could be exchanged for another set with hardly more trouble than it would take to change the table manners of an individual or of a people. So I want to talk today about memory and about literature and what this means in these three parts. And the first, I ask some questions and offer a more complicated version of uh, what I think memory in this context is, which in part responds to uh, Dan and Doug's complementary but different views of uh, memory. In the second part, I discuss the nature of modernity in relation to this and ask the key question of my lecture. And the third, I look at responses to this and I try uh, to answer the impossible question I have in the second part. Um, and I'm very interested, we don't start with talking about myself as a little boy, I'm very interested in the, in the how memory comes to work, in the sort of nitty-gritty practical reasons for it. So here's the first section. Um, and it's, called, uh, it's about memory and language. Some 15 to 20 years ago, an odd grammatical phenomena occurred around the use of the word memory. The word became floating, Books were called preserving memory, shapes of memory, the politics of memory, the ethics of memory, chapters, like the, cha the concluding chapter to Toby Judd's magisterial book, Postwar, were called things like an essay on modern European memory. And what's grammatically odd about these titles is the word memory seems evacuated of content. They're not called preserving the memory of the Holocaust or remembering Dunkirk, just memory. And I want to ask, an essay on the European memory of what? Now, sometimes this use, this floating use of the word memory, is just publisher speak or academic speak, pointing generally to a topic. Preserving memory is more striking than a book called *The Struggle to Build America's First Holocaust Museum*. But I also think that at the same time, the turn towards memory as a category of thought analysis, this vagueness uncovers a lack of understanding of what memory really means. Like all really interesting words. Um, complex words, we literary critics call them. We know what we mean when we use the word in everyday sense, but as soon as we try and pin it down, it opens up into a whole universe, a whole universe of complexity and difficulty. Now, the academic boom of interest in memory itself is premised on a two-step argument, which stems, as is well known, from the work of Maurice Halbwax. Uh, first, there is an anti-behaviourist claim that memory is not stored in the brain and fixed like photos in an album or your hard drive, but is rather both fluid and involved in a complex way with other people and with narrative. Halbwax writes that there is no point in seeing where memories are preserved in some look of my mind to which I alone have access, for they are to be recalled externally, and here's the second step, called externally, and the groups of which I am a part at any time give me the means to reconstruct them. He goes on, it's in society that people normally acquire their memories, it's also in society that they recall, reorganise and localise their memories. There exist a collective memory and social frameworks for memory. And it's to the degree that our individual thought places itself in these frameworks and participates in this memory that we are capable of the act of recollection. 
I want to suggest, and despite declarations to the contrary, that most accounts of memory and its effects, and even Halbwax's account, still partake too much of the photograph album model. In part, this is the result of the powerful folk psychology impact upon us of the prosthetics of memory on photograph albums and memorials and archives uh, and computers and so on. And in part because many historians, although not Dan Stone, uh, who deal in memory often treat memory as an archive you can visit. Now, Halbach, so here's my, I'm going to start to offer an alternative view of how we might think about memory and think about what that means. Halbach's work has an interesting kink or confusion. For Halbach's, memory is interwoven with language. People living in society, he writes, use words they find intelligible. This is the precondition of collective thought. But each word that is understood is accompanied by the recollections. We speak of our recollections before calling them to mind. It is language, and the whole system of social conventions attached to it, that allows us at every moment to reconstruct our past. Here, language and memory are very closely pressed together. Language allows us memory, but surely too, memory allows us language. It's not to say that memory and language are the same thing, but point out this very close intimacy. Uh, perhaps it is not so surprising as, after all, our experiences of pastness and futurity uh, are experiences that is embodied and shaped by our use of tense. But this closeness occurs too in Wittgenstein, where memory and language have a, a close interrelationship. And there are two linked parts of his thought on this I want to focus. The first is about the interweaving of language and memory. When we think of objects and their names, we don't actually think of them as signifiers with signifieds attached, like name tags. There's no tag that says table that we look at in our mind. We want to say, look at the table. And likewise, memory is not a photograph album or a hard drive in our heads that we look at and say, ah, oh, yes, this is my table. And here's Wittgenstein talking about this. When I talk about this table, am I remembering that this object is called a table? Asked, did you recognise your desk when you entered the, your room this morning? I should no doubt say, certainly. And yet it would be misleading to say that an act of recognition had taken place. Of course, the desk was not strange to me. I was not surprised to see it, as I should have been if another one had been standing there or some unfamiliar kind of object. No one will say, every time I enter my room, my long familiar surroundings, there is an act of recognition of all that I have seen and have seen hundreds of times before. The desk isn't remembered. It's simply part of the familiar world. One doesn't remember one's world. Similarly, or as an illustration, um, Alzheimer's disease is not a disease that attacks one's memory, it attacks one's world. The material things around one uh, remain the same, the calendar that marks shared time, the treasured childhood school editions of Shakespeare, the photograph of the deceased husband, all these things are still there, but their world, their place and their meaning in the person's world, which is given to them by memory, fades. Second, and stemming from the sense that the familiar is not actively recalled like a computer file, but is simply where we are. I want to stress how it is that memory, like language, shapes our world. Stanley Cavell argues that in learning language, we don't merely learn the pronunciation of sounds and their grammatical orders, but the forms of life which make those sounds the words they are. <coughs> so I want to say, in coming to memory, you learn not merely what happened, but what memory is. Not merely what the sequence of events are, but what it is to be in relation to those sequence of events. Not merely what the past is called, as if it were made of glass bead counters, but what the past is. In coming to memory, you don't merely learn past events, 
but the forms of life which make those events the events they are. It is as if memory comes before us. In coming to memory, you learn forms of life. Uh, so when I was thinking about this on the tube just now, I was thinking um, this is rather, talking about memory and language, it's rather akin to trying to, uh, the famous distinction between uh, long, the, the very nature of language, and parole, individual utterances, and that memory would be the, the long, and particular memory might be a parole. But I don't want to press that too far, because I don't want to suggest that memory is language, but they have an interesting similarity which we can play with or think about. So I want to suggest that when we think of memory, we are better in doing ourselves and the concept more justice if we think of it as akin to a language. That is to say, in this deeper sense of memory, we don't, as a little boy, for example, remember the war, as we might try and recall the plot of some novel, the name of a friend's baby. We don't recall that Berlin and London were bombed or the Nazis were defeated. We simply know this. It is where we are. And this is a radically different view to that offered by, for example, Alison Landsberg in her excellent book, her excellent but wrong book, Prosthetic Memory. Um, it is suggests, as it were, we have two levels of memory, or we use the word in two senses. One refers to the more conventional sense of memory, who won the FA Cup in 1956, some facts to remember. The other to this deeper and more profound sense of who we are, a memory that's not remembered, as it were, but lived. And this is what I think underlies Doug's felicitous phrase, history lived in the present tense, that he discussed uh, uh, on Tuesday. You know, living, people living in Berlin, they live history in the present tense, he said. I thought it was a fantastic way of trying to get to this sense of the, the, the presentness of memory. And similarly, this addresses why, as Dan made clear, issues of memory are not simply academic matters, but are inextricably interwoven with everyday life and in political conflict. So when I was a little boy then, what I was doing, I was not working through some cultural trauma. I was doing something more akin to what children do anyway. I was learning something like a language. And I think this view of memory has a number of consequences, which I'm only going to touch on here. First, it means that memory, uh, like a language, is neither simply first collective, like as Halbert argues, nor first private, like a private language. Rather, memory is both, or rather transcends both these categories. It's neither private nor public, but sort of before these. This is one reason why, like language, what memory is is so hard to pin down to def and define. Like a ghost, it's neither one thing nor another. Um, second, I think, this means the relation between memory and uh, right or wrong positive style statements about cognitive truth are quite complicated, to say the least. It makes no sense to say that language itself is wrong or right. I mean, uh, an utterance can be wrong or right or follow certain laws, but language itself can't be wrong or right. So memory, then, is, is not really about uh, historical accuracy. That is, it's not about accuracy in relation to certain predetermined criteria established both as and through the discipline of history, although statements of memory can be. Um, one of the things historians are very keen to do, because uh, everyone, everyone in the discipline is keen to big up their own discipline. One of the things historians are very keen to do is say historians are the, are the doctors of memory. And we have memories and, and views of the world and the historian with uh, his scalpel, very gendered, will sort of cut through these false memories and tell you what really happened. And I think that's a... Uh, um, well, well, I see that the point of that claim uh, that Toby Judd made and uh, Yaroslami make, I think it's a very arrogant claim because in a sense to, to, be, a, to be a doctor of memory 
is to, is to engage with everything that is to be a human being, I think. And this view of memory, this uh, deep view of memory, seems more troublesome. Third, me memory is clearly about identity. Memory obviously is about identity. We inhabit familiar memory as we inhabit language, not as we possess things or have even have opinions. Yet, as with language, memory is not coterminal with identity. Like language, it can change and develop, fail and be reworked. And I suggest the relation between uh, <coughs> identity and memory could be thought, like, thought about like this. Identity without memory is empty. But memory without identity is meaningless. This is what lies behind memoro politics, one things Dan was talking about. And as Dan Stone and others have made clear, memory is central not only to the historical understanding of Europe's past, but to its future too. The way in which we are in memory plays a large role in constructing our identity, personal, social, communal, and in turn our identity shapes in no small way how we remember the past, cope in the present, or hope and expect for the future. Thus again, memory is not really of the past, but is present. Again, history lived in the present tense. And of course, if memory is present, it's also future, so we are facing the future, and our private and collective hopes and fears are intended stories. And this leads to the, this leads to the second, my second section, where I try to get close to my question. Um, and I try to get close to the question of, of, that uh, Simon raised at the beginning about uh, Europe beyond governance, what is it to be in Europe, how to understand uh, Europeanness. So what then is the relationship between memory, in this deep sense, this lived memory, and teleology, between memory and the beginning to end stories we tell ourselves, the heading of Europe, the direction of Europe. It's not simply that, as in the case of propaganda, events are used or misused. The use or misuse of events already depends on a form of life, on a memory that makes that use or misuse significant. And now I want to do one of these terrible um, things that everyone rightly derides literary theory people for. I make one of these ludicrous, enormous claims that can never be proved, but seems very important, okay? Um, so I'm really sorry about that. And if I had more time, I'd talk about it for hours and hours and hours, but I'm not going to. Okay, so uh, here's my huge sweeping statement. Europe, it's important, that's the paper. European modernity, and it's not very contentious. Okay, it's a huge sweeping statement that's totally uncontentious, <coughs> relatively uncontentious. European modernity, from the Enlightenment perhaps, and certainly from Nietzsche's announcements of the death of God, is about at least a disruption and possibly an ending to the teleological structures that shaped both individual and collective life. Whether in Nietzsche say this is an announcement or a discovery, or in other people it's simply a description of a social change, or coming to terms with the diversity of global teleologies in the most nascent stage of a global world by rejecting one teleology, is not my subject here. Although I think there's as much an ethical rejection of teleology as there is a sociological description of its withering. I'm concerned here only with the impact of this event. Okay, with, the, with the end or the death or the withering or the change of teleological thinking, which happens somewhere between the Enlightenment and, I don't know, 1880 or something. Okay? Of course, this tremendous event, as Nietzsche says, is still on its way. Deeds need time, even after they're done, in order to be seen and heard, as the madman puts it. And teleology, our ends, our mission, our destiny, our, as Derrida calls it, our heading, has constantly been invoked since then. 
Indeed, the reason this question seems pressing is because accounts of memory and memorial politics specifically seem to be grounded in teleology. So accounts of memory by people seem to take teleology for granted, whereas other sorts of people are saying teleology is now withered away or finished. Um, uh, okay. We, uh, I mean, we can imagine, can't we, a demagogue's speech. You know, we started here, and our mission is to be there. We suffered this, and our destiny is to avenge it. This is not simply using memory of an event, as one might say, not using something like uh, industrial production figures to inspire a reaction, but drawing on a form of life or on lived memory which empowers such memory politics. But the very suspicion that hangs around words like destiny or mission when people use destiny, when we see we hear terrible echoes, people talking about national destiny or national missions, uh, or even when we're all in it together, we find strange, nasty echoes around this jargon of teleology reveals there is or has been a change. I'm suspicious of these words. Moreover, while some thinkers like Alistair MacIntyre have ad advocated a return to forms of nuanced teleology, others, like Derrida for example, are, to speak very quickly, in disagreement with precisely this. In a phrase that I'm stealing, having stolen a phrase from Doug, I'm going to steal a phrase from Simon. The phrase I'm stealing from Simon Glendening, um, he said this phrase, what it is to, to be now, our self-understanding now is a, a long-term movement towards a non-theological understanding of ourselves. So what's the relationship? So we're on this, since the Enlightenment, we're on this, this long journey to have a non-theological sense of ourselves. And of course that we in that sentence comes hedged with all sorts of questions. Which we? Who we? And so on. So the we I'm trying to think about, I guess, is a, in this context, is a European we, whatever that might mean. So what, then, is the role of lived or deep memory in this? What's the role of, of uh, memory in this long-term movement towards non-teleological understanding ourselves in, in relation to, this, to, to the jargon of teleology? Memory, in the way I've described it, is part of us. But how is it possible to experience it non-teleologically? Can we develop a non-theological sense of ourselves and still have memory? In the face of this question, there seem to be a range of very different European answers. Some results, or some answers to this, simply ignore this change. We could, like some religious fundamentalists or type, some types of Marxists, simply refuse to think about a non-theological sense of ourselves and deny modernity by holding fast to versions of the Teleology is given by, for example, uh, various religious or ethnic groups, or by teleologies created by carefully constructed traditions of struggle. I feel this is either desperate or misguided or simply a lie. In entirely the opposite and so similar way, it's possible to imagine changing the memories so as to fit a new teleology or, or a non teleology. This is, of course, a sort of Stalinist way. It's also the crime that opponents of political correctness accuse proponents of political correctness of. But, as both Stalinists and political correctness people discovered, changing a form of life, changing not just a photograph but a whole way of being, is much harder than it appears. I'm always struck in the novel 1984 that while um, uh, Winston Smith, in fact, and the commentators and critics are obsessed with Newspeak and the rewriting of the past. Um, the apparatchik O'Brien 
is more convinced by the simplicity of the boot stamping on the human face forever. Okay? Not in the changing memories and ways of life, simply in the brute fact of oppression. But it's a novel, and perhaps when he says this, this terrible sentence, imagine the future of boot stamping on the human face forever, it's part of his torturous rhetoric to intimidate and uh, destroy Smith. So perhaps, another sort of answer, we could transcend the role of memory. Edward Said often cited this very beautiful passage from uh, the, the medieval monk Hugh of St. Victor to the effect of, the person who finds his homeland sweet is a tender beginner. He to whom every soil is as, if, as his native one is already strong, but he is perfect to whom the entire world is a foreign place. The tender soul has fixed his love on one spot in the world. The strong person has extended his love to all places, and the perfect man has extinguished his. And while in his commentary on this passage, Saeed does stress the working through of attachments, uh, as it were, in this, in this passage here, from a sort of nationalistic memory politics to a universal alienation, this doesn't seem to me to address the role of memory as a form of life, not just as a counter in a game, but as a role in our very existence. I think it speaks, as does his assumption of knowing the truth in his slogan, speaking the truth to power, it speaks of an Olympian detachment and a sort of false objectivity. Derrida addresses this sense of the relationship between literature and uh, teleology and non-teleological senses of ourselves. I'm sorry, it's a complete scrambled sentence. Okay, so Derrida addresses exactly this issue in his book on Europe, The Other Heading. He talks the way in which the history of a culture presupposes both an identifiable heading, a telos towards which the movement, the memory, the promise, the identity, dreams of gathering itself, a sense of direction to teleology. And at the same time as that, he talks about the eruption of the new, the unforeseeable, the unanticipatable, the non-masterable, the non-identifiable. In short, that of which one does not as yet have a memory. Um, here these various typical late Derrida themes, a sense of a sort of messianic newness erupting in something that's already been there. Um, but he warns the, that the new can also become a slogan for what he calls the return of the phantom of the worst. Okay? Because of this, he says, we must be suspicious of both repetitive memory and the completely other of the absolutely new. So he's saying in terms of teleology, we want to have a, be uh, open to a newness, we don't know where it's coming from, what it is. And at the same time, because of the phantom of the worst, this new has to be suspicious of the newness. His solution then to the relationship between memory and teleology is to be both anamnestic, to recall completely, and amnesiac, to forget in order to be new. This is slightly different from some of his earlier positions on perhaps less important matters. To forget and to remember at the same time is similar to reading the same page of philosophy but reading it in a different way, but not exactly the same. But it seems to me it's all very well to be told we can... We should have our cake and eat it, okay, to be amnesiac and anamnesiac at the same time. But it raises the question of how this is actually to be done. And here, the third stage of my lecture, I think that literature, or some sort of literature, as Dan Stone said, serious European literature, or as Doug said, uh, literature that tries to shape a personal understanding of the past, and as, as I've suggested in this area, the boundaries between the personal and the collective are murky, can offer some helpful signs. 
It's in literature, I think, that this, the answer to my question, emerges in a way that can, like some fleeting subatomic particle, be for a moment seen, and if not measured, at least noted. Okay. Um, that's a better metaphor than I was before. You see, me, literature was literature was like um, a tooth that was coming out. I mean, when you're a little child, your teeth are coming out, and you play with a tooth that's sort of attached and not attached at the same time with your tongue. That seems to me, I don't know why that's stuck in my head as thinking about what literature does. Well, the main difficulties about talking about literature, of course, is that um, not only is there so much of it, and not only has everyone read some of it, but despite these things, no one really knows what it is. It's one of these complex words I mentioned earlier. I tend to stick with Derrida's definition that literature is a strange institution which allows one to say everything. An institution because, after all, we know where to find it on shelves and we know, you know what it looks like. And one which allows one to say everything because a book can say perhaps not everything but anything. Literature, literature is the sort of stuff that doesn't fit anywhere else. It has no simple rules about what it can say. And I think literature that does have rules about what it can say, uh, genre literature is an interesting case, but I, I worry about that. But from this rather negative definition come uh, some of the things I think might be helpful. But before I talk about the three things that I think might be helpful to think about the, a non-theological relationship to memory, um, I'll say something that I'm not going to say. I'm, not, I'm going to try and cling to the um, idea of literature being... Um, I'm going to try and cling to the idea of literature <laughs> being uh, this thing in which you can say anything. That's a negative definition. And that means I'm not going to say literature has some critical relationship to memory or is a form of critical engagement. Some is, of course, but some isn't. The thing I'm going to, things I'm going to say further apply not to individual novels and poems, although we can easily <coughs> find examples, but to the very category of the literary. It's a pure act of literary theory, a theory about the literary. And so I've got three things that I think are ways of thinking about this. And they're very rough and ready and um, unproperly thought out. The first one I've called completeness. I don't know quite why I've called it that. So, historians used to spend a long time debating whether history is an art or a science. And what lies at the core of this debate is the kind of truth to which history aspires and the ways that this is achieved or aimed at. This is true in two ways. First, this debate, history, truth or uh, uh, science or art, about the epistemological status of historical facts. I'm not going to discuss this here because getting historians to agree about this is like herding cats, which is odd because historians are not like cats. They're like mice. Okay? They're like mice because, like mice, we have a mouse in your house, so there's never just one mouse. Okay? Um, this is because the second way that historians relate to truth is through their quasi-scientific procedure a nearly wholly admirable process of team working or thinking as a discipline, a Deleuzean history machine. One historian proposes, another disagrees, and so they go on. To understand the history, to understand the historian's history of an event is not to read one book, but to follow a debate, sometimes decades long. That is to say, 
discipline of, his, his, discipline of history is to be understood historically. So when you, when you come to try and understand what's going on, what historians are talking about, it's not individual books or articles as a thing, it's the fact they're always in a constant debate with each other. Okay. Um, a work that's outside this debate, a work of uh, anti-Semitic hate speech, for example, is not a work of history. That is, one work of history is not in itself complete, but self-consciously part of a process, which is why it has footnotes. A process that, like the advance of science, may reach no final, final conclusion, but is structured by the idea of a final conclusion. A work of history may not be teleological, but the institution it inhabits is. In contrast, a novel, while of course it's shaped by other novels and genres, and can of course have footnotes if it wants, and sometimes explicitly puts itself into debate, remember literature can say anything, also uses the sense that it is itself complete, even if, say, with postmodern fiction it avoids or plays with completeness. But a novel or a poem has a different relationship to completeness. A novel may or may not be theological, but the institution it inhabits is not. Only professors of literature say, and it's a lie, only professors of literature say, say that you can only understand this novel if you've read that novel. And indeed, one of my jobs is to create teleologies for fiction. Okay, so the, the sense of completeness uh, of a historical work and of a novel are different. Now, Frank Commode argued in his masterpiece, The Sense of an Ending, that the novel gave us a version of teleology, a birth to death of and in narrative, to help us face and comprehend our own deaths, our own inevitably teleological existence. But if we are developing a non-teleological sense of ourselves, the play with teleology in literature is precisely how we might have an inkling about how that worked. So literature then is a place where teleology is played with, where we can see memory and a commitment to memory held, but also denied, questioned, complicated, where, as in life, motives are murky and mixed. Is Max Oi, the uh, SS officer protagonist of Jonathan Nuttell's The Kindly Ones that Dan discussed, really a committed Nazi or escaping his weird and abusive past or both so the first sense then about uh, non-theological relationships is to look to uh, the relationship between literary texts and teleology of course while the uh, literary movements of the last 30-40 years the people give lectures about uh, you know, post-modernism said to books that uh, books are a way of writing and thinking that is um, has a very complicated relationship to teleology. And that's one inkling, one way of thinking about um, this question, memory and non-theological understandings. But a second one comes to what I've called, um, I think underlies everything that I've said really, uh, a sense of tacit knowledge. Dan Stone began by citing G.M. Trevelyan, saying that those who write or read the history of a period should be soaked in its, in its literature and those who read or expound literature should be soaked in history. And, as we heard in his lecture, he was as good as his word. Indeed, in his most recent book, he wrote that historians gain a great deal from reading Holocaust fiction, not necessarily for accuracy, but for their insights into the nature of the Nazis and the Holocaust. And it's true that novels can provide hard-to-pin-down ways of coming to understand what Raymond William calls structures of feeling. However, in a way, although this escapes the idea that... Um, a sort of reduction to facts, you read a novel to learn facts, 
there's something similar going on there. Um, you read lots of 18th century novels to understand the 18th century, and you may not be able to pin down facts, but you get a sense of the structures of feeling. You're sort of using it as a historical resource. But there's something going on perhaps about forms of life that a work of literature both comes from and through which it's interpreted, uh, which complicates this. Much of teaching works literature in histor historical works literature from the past involves helping students attune themselves to a very different form of life. Um, <laughs> one of the things I think comes from reading fiction is a sense of this difference, this deep memory, difference in forms of life. And of course, we're keen to find in fiction a sameness. We're keen to want to believe that um, uh, characters in Jane Austen are just like, the just like us. They live in the same world as we do. But they inhabit a very different world. There was a television series called Lost in Austen two or three years ago. It was an extremely radical bit of television because in terms of this deep self-understanding, the woman from the 20th century or 21st century found herself inhabiting the early 19th century and she found herself in a completely different world where even though as Mr Darcy looked very sexy and got his shirt wet in a pond, at the same time she and he were completely different sorts of people because they had different forms of life. And there's something about reading literature which, which um, opens up to an oddness um, that we can't rid ourselves no matter how much we read and reread. So there's some deep differences. And that's, of course, why uh, the further you get away from historical texts, the further away their world has decayed, the harder they are for, to, to understand or to get your head around, if you see what I mean. Chaucer is harder to understand than Shakespeare, and Chaucer harder even than... Uh, uh, Beowulf harder even than Chaucer. And finally, my third thing, uh, my third key thing about fiction... Uh, is the thing that um, irritated Plato and still irritates people today, which is that the power of affect. Through the power of affect, fiction can make you imitate people bellowing like cows or like a woman in labour, as Plato says. But it can make you happy or uh, afraid or about things that aren't there. And it can make you respond to things that are not true or proper, as we all know. It's literature of philosophy. 101. And of course, some of the things fiction wants you to feel are true, and some aren't. But it's precisely this having your cake and eating it through affect that seems to worry people. Um, affect, of course, as Plato thinks, is fine when it points the way the rulers want it to go, to the unknown soldier, to the parade. When it goes some other way, or even has the potential to go some other way, it somehow escapes. And I think one of the great achievements of the European novel, the serious European fiction, is the ability of seeing things from different points of view. But to think about this and think about this as something uh, real, something, some affect which is really uh, helping us think about where we are in the world, is to run counter to reams of writing about the end of art, about the impossibility of authentic art or real art nowadays. This argument from Hegel, but more recently in Agamben, says the time for authentic art is over. The world, lost in techno-modernity, can't sustain proper art. And art is now sort of fading from the world. However, I wonder if this is true. We seem surrounded by art of different sorts, and far from banishing art from the city, power seems constantly in a fight with art, hardly daring to admit art's power. 
the danger of this sort of loose affect sloshing about, whatever we call this, um, human interest or, or real stories seems everywhere. So, so I wonder whether the, the sense of um, loose and free-floating affect which comes from art or is stimulated, stimulated by art uh, is not something still very worrying. And in fact, I'm just thinking every time people try and say real art is dead, whether something else is going on underneath the surface. And I wonder whether thinking about that isn't help, can help us think about a non-theological sense of ourselves in relation to memory. Because, of course, um, memory and affect are tightly woven in together. So I think these three things, is playing with telos, the impact of the presentation, of the depth of a form of life, and the power of affect, or the loose power of affect, in a sense, or can in a sense, not offer us a version of the relation of deep memory to a non-theological sense of ourselves, but a sense of what it might look like. Of course, all these are evanescent. One person's affect is another person's boring mawkishness. One person's moment of historical distance is another dull description, another person's dull description of a ball in Moscow. And yet, if they were not evanescent, they would precisely be the more positive and weighty facts, factual statements of history. It's precisely this shining surface, this bubble quality, that makes them literary. So it's precisely the fact you can't pin them down or say anything very coherent about them that makes them literary, which is precisely what the issue is. I told a friend I was going to begin with my favourite quotation from Derrida. I, I, I'm not. I'm going to end with it. In his book um, of Spirit, Derrida ends with a fictional exchange between his his version of Martin Heidegger and some Christian theologians, and then discusses this fiction, this fictional argument. And in fact, this fictional argument, a, a trick he uses from time to time, he sort of ventriloquizes people. Um, his fiction allows him to suspend the teleology of a philosophical argument. We've been speaking, Derrida writes, of nothing but the translation of these thoughts and discourses into what are commonly called the events of history and of politics. I put quotation marks around all these obscure words, events, history and politics. It would be necessary to translate what such an exchange can imply as the most radical possibility. This translation appears to be both indispensable and for the moment impossible therefore calls for quite, another, quite other protocols. What I'm aiming at here, obviously enough, is anything but abstract. We are talking about the past, present and future events, a composition of forces and discourses which seem to be waging merciless war on each other from, for example, 1933 to the present time. So what I've tried to do here, in response to that Derrida thought about well, to have our cake and eat it, to have, be forgetful and have memory at the same time, what I've tried to do here is this... Uh, to try and begin to think about this indispensable and impossible translation. A translation between the deeper sense of memory, akin to a language, and the disorientation of modernity, between the philosophical and the political, and to point at what in Europe and perhaps elsewhere is beyond governance, but which is, and has, beyond governance, which is, uh, uh, crucially, is and has been crucially important for governance. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I could ask a kind of opening thing, which is a clarification for me as much as anything else. But um, it may take me a, a minute to 
get it out of myself. The, it, it's, it's the passage from the theme of familiarity that you began with to, um, to the understanding of literature that you concluded with. Um, and I suppose I'll put my point in the crudest possible way by saying that one of the ways in which we've um, come to terms with what literature is, is in terms of structures of defamiliarization. And so I just want to think for a moment about the familiar that you talked about and how something like defamiliarization might be really interesting in relation to that and how, how far that does or doesn't fit with what you were thinking about the, of, as the literary. Because one of the key things that you said at the beginning was that if you're thinking about your room, or, or, or in a wider sense, your familiar world, um, it's not something that you, where there's an act of recognition with respect to it. When you go back to your room, you don't remember oh yes, this is my room. <laughs> oh, I mean, generally speaking, that's not the everyday way of recognizing your room. And one of the great tasks of philosophy, actually, has been to try to come to terms conceptually with this kind of familiarity with, uh, um, with the envir your environing world. And there seems to be a parallel to the question of the European world, um, that we might think of two senses of recognition here too. That, on the one hand, there's the you might say you might walk into a, to a room and say, "Oh my God, my old desk," right, which hadn't been there for years, and suddenly it's reappeared. Or you've got into a room you hadn't been in before, and suddenly you see your old desk, and there's there's this uh, uh, act of recognition. And we contrast that with an, a case where you just see your desk again, where you recognize your desk, but there's no act of recognition in the same way. Similarly with Europe, you could imagine cases where people were thinking about European memory and they'd be going back to memories. Oh, you know, you know, I remember Berlin before the war. And that would be this sort of act of memory. And we, there'd be European memories in this sense but then European memory would be something else, more like your familiar case, where um, European memory would be this dimension of familiarity, this being at home, as it were, in this space. And so this would be something which completely saturates your being. It would be the language of your language and so on. And I just wonder what you think about the idea then of literature not always being, not is, but literature can be an event of defamiliarization through which you can come to terms with the familiar. And so there might be something of European literature, which isn't literature that hails from Europe, but one which in some way discloses the familiar in some way to you in a way that nothing else can. Um. Okay, well, there's a lot there, so can I go through it in no particular order? Um, I, I suppose I'm very, I find, myself, I find myself very committed, as I think you recognise, to, to a sense that there's, it's very hard to say what literature is, because it isn't really one hmm. thing. So, um, 
I, I, I agree with what you say that, that some literature familiarises and some doesn't. Because, mm. of course, often we read books precisely because they're not, because they are familiar. Um, but, of course, some does defamiliarise. And I suppose I was thinking that um, uh, talk, about, talk about memory. If we think of memory like, like it is a language, then it's, it's not so much that you call to mind what Berlin was like before the war. No. I mean, you, you do that in the way you speak a sentence in a, in a language, but you really inhabit in your mind what Berlin was like before the war. So the people that Doug met, uh, uh, who was to talk about Berlin, they, they were in, inhabiting it and living it all at the same time. So it's, it's not... And I don't know, with, with, with those sort of memories, one, one, one lives them, one doesn't sort of try and dig them out. Although perhaps one might, I suppose, and might try and say a very complicated sentence or something. Well, I guess that. So, but I think that's quite a complicated, shade, uh, slidey sort of area. One slides into the other. Um, and in terms of then how the uh, literature defamiliarizes and so gives us Europe. Mm. I suppose I think I'm very stuck with that thing about Heidegger about. Um, you know, a, a Proust says somewhere, uh, he says that um, a great work of art is like, a, like going to an optician. And you go to the optician and you see the world through totally new, through, this, through the new work of art, the new glasses. Okay? It's totally new, but it's, it is totally the same. It's just renewed by clarity. Mm. And I suppose I think that what, one of the things about great works of art is that they're able to do that. Um, and I'm immediately struck by the thought that there are lots of different sorts of great works of art. Uh, some, if you like, might be movements. So it might be a whole lot of poets who are modernists change how we think about things. Mm. Some might be individual books. So we might find an artwork change. But there might be other things as well. I mean, Heidegger says, doesn't he, that, that um, the polis is a great aesthetic invention of the Greeks. Mm. So I suppose... Um, there's a constant changing of what things might be. And I suppose, now I'm speaking out loud, I'm wondering whether, is your implication that underneath all these changes there is some European thing, that all these things are self-understanding? Because I find, I'm, because I find myself thinking that it's much more a sort of aggregation of stuff, one after the other. And what makes us different is that... Um, it's true people before didn't know what the stuff was because they are the stuff that we know. Well, that, uh, the, 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 the idea of the art world as disclosing something in a new way but yet leaving it as it is, as it were, <laughs> that, that, that's very much, I suppose, what I'm thinking about that right. maybe literature would be capable of because, in fact, the, the, the category of the familiar is precisely the one that Heidegger uses to describe the mode of understanding that belongs to an understanding of being and he says that's something like understanding a world and that's familiarity that's not a kind of cognitive achievement so it's just uh, being familiar with dwelling that sort of idea and and I think he does think that um, art is one way in which 
the, the already cleared and familiar world can become in a certain way explicit to us. And I, and I suppose I was thinking, and that would be a defamiliarization, but not one which uh, um, distorts the already familiar world. It's just it opens its familiarity to you in some way. So, uh, but yes, it does. It does beg the question whether uh, there is a world which is European. And that's that. Perhaps is another another question. But I suppose what I was trying to think about was the relationship between that and the, and the and memory, if you like, because I think that's that's a, 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 a different and again a more complicated or another complication because obviously artworks arise out of collective mm. memory mm. and they also shape collective memory mm. and they're understood they can't be understood through collective memory and if there is some deep change in what the the sort of stream of memory is that artworks both cause and are shaped by shifts in that um, yes that, that's right uh, okay yes I agree with that so okay <laughs> so anybody else some thoughts there's one there yeah um, you sort of mentioned it towards the end though which is Rio was interested in your thoughts about the relationship between individual memory and collective memory because in you mentioned word history an individual work of history uh, book, a history book may not make much sense without the collective background of uh, uh, many historians work you may have the same thing with individual memory and collective memory in which one particular memory on its own is loses its significance even to that uh, the person who has it. And so, uh, so really, just, just what your thoughts, um, does the value of an individual's memory or significance given to the world inhabited change, or like, does it have any significance about the collective? Well, that's a really difficult question, and I, um, I, I suppose I've I don't know. What, I don't. I, I don't have a, an answer to that. I suppose I'm trying to think about the. I mean, the, the sort of scientist answer is that you know there's individual memories inside your head, and I can chop and change them with a scalpel. Whereas the collective memory argument is exactly as you say, to the sense that the collective memory comes first. It's only in that context that individual memories have sense and meaning. But it seems to me that in fact the the, the truth of the matter is is is. is Having your cake and eat it, both those things, because it's certainly true that individual me individuals' memories can run counter to what the collective memory is, um, and likewise have a sort of uh, have a dissonance to that. And then either those memories, those individual memories, become incorporated in the collective, or they're constantly at odds to it. And I guess there's a, a a sort of complicated sliding scale or something between them. But I suppose what I was trying to get away from was the sense of either that sort of mass collective memory, mass unconscious type thing, or individual memories. And rather they have quite a sort of, I think as you're suggesting, a sort of permeable sort of relation. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question at all? No. It does, but it then leads on to other questions about uh, what the existence of a European memory, because then you have the issue of um, being excluded or not, um, which is which is what I'm particularly interested in, Edward Said, and about the other existence. And so um, Europe's got a very particular history of being divided as well as uh, united, and memories are still being very, I mean, I come from Poland, and memories in, for instance, with Ukraine, Lithuania, which I've shared, also very much fought over. 
and so it's it's actually not very easy to to remove it from politics. And so the question is that um, I'm not actually sure that you can ever separate um, an individual memory from the collective. And in which case, the, when we talk about teleological movements, it's very you you can't remove that either. Because the process of bringing a memory into a collective memory is a formation. It's bringing it towards something, even if it then moves away. So I'm not convinced that it could be removed at all. No, I I, 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 I agree it can't be. I agree it can't be removed. I mean, one one of the things did you hear? Were you here for Dan Stone's le uh, lecture? Because that was very much about exactly these sorts of issues, about, in particular in Eastern Europe, about the ways in which um, uh, suppressed, sort of culturally suppressed memories have been returning and conversations have been uh, happening again. Uh, Dan uh, argues in other places that the, when we talk about the about post-war, really the post-war period really begins in 1989 or 1990 because it's because during the period of the Cold War all these memories have been frozen in place by different power structures, by totalitarianism in the East and by the Cold War and the need to sort of fight in the West. And it's only now that all sorts of things are coming to the fore, some much less nice, so uh, memories or debates about people's collaboration with the Nazis or rising anti-Semitism, and some much more about trying to think things through in different sorts of ways. And one of the things I think is going on in, in Europe that I've been trying to think about, or Dan's thinking about, Doug was talking about, precisely the ways in which um, excluded memories become back into the mainstream through museums or through novels or what have you, or continue to be excluded or take part in this debate. And I suppose one of, the, one of the reasons of trying to think of it like a language, one of the advantages of this metaphor for memory, is because it allows for this sort of shifting sort of change. I mean, if we were a group of linguists, we'd, we would have no difficulty with saying all these people from southern Ukraine have suddenly arrived in northern Poland, and so the dialects in northern Poland are changing and shifting. That would be normal, and we could measure that with phonetic calipers and stuff like that, couldn't we, easily? Um, well, you know what I mean. We could find a measuring device measuring changes in accents. Um, and if we think of memory in a similar sort of way, we can see how shifting changes in politics and population and in art shift and change memory and how we understand ourselves in the same sort of way. Could, so you, just, just, could you just explain a bit more? How, that I think it's an absolutely fascinating idea of the dependence of European memory on a certain kind of excluded memory, for example, or, or uh, um, some kind of uh, denegation of memory. Um, how, how would uh, literature for you engage with that kind of structure? <coughs> Or is it the literary theorist's job to do that? Uh, I mean, well, is it no, literature I mean, or...? I, I, I think, I think um, I mean, in terms of practical examples, I mean, there are all sorts of uh, ways in which... Um, I'm struggling now because I'm, Dan gave a huge list of novels that uh, he, uh, he talked about. I haven't yet read any of them. So, um, But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's the case, isn't it, that there are... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of sort of obvious or less obvious examples... I mean, one of the very famous examples is Primo Levi's uh, testimony. This is a man published twice just after the, just after the war in the early 40s and republished in the late 50s. A novel which, which, as it were, opens a novel, sorry, a testimony, which opens up a whole way of understanding uh, the Holocaust and Auschwitz in a way which becomes, then becomes accessible. So I think what happens is that works of, uh, works of art or works of literature 
uh, address or bring to light or, or summarise problems, which then allow uh, conversations to sort of coalesce around them. I think, I think you told me once about, um, in fact it may be a Polish example I'm afraid, of people knowing and not knowing what was going on around them and that are presumably then, well I mean I don't know if it's just a survival literature which problematises that or, or whether literature itself has some key role. Um, People knowing what was happening. Well, I, mean, I think I think one I think one of the things one of the things about one of the things about literature being able to say anything yeah. is that literature can 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 sort of call time or can explore what it is to both know and not know. I think one of the things that characterises European identity is a, a weird combination of of knowing things and not knowing them at the same time, or denying them, or secretly knowing them. Um, I think it's the case with the uh, it's the case with the the Holocaust, that the much the German population, despite denying they ever anything about it, did in fact know a great deal about it. I think that comes out in strange, odd sorts of ways. I'm trying to think of other sorts of examples, um, uh, the ways in which. Well, presumably, some of the examples you're giving from Said must come out as well where, well, where you've got the relation to the Asian other or something like this, which is represented in particular ways standardly, but presumably there would also be uh, other understandings available within the culture which would have disrupted those things. And, and one of the things about literary works is that, is that they, one of the things they can do is be, as it were, on the, on the cutting edge of development of things. So they're about new ways of Lithuania understanding itself, as well as being about just reproducing sort of yeah, propagandistic yeah. lines. Mm. I suppose that's, that's one of the things that, again, Dan talked about and Doug talked about, which is a sense of the ways in which literary works uh, both offer little completenesses and self-understandings, but try and explain all these things that are, that are convergent at the time. And this is a bit about your memory and newness thing, actually, because these memories are not just memories, they're also throwing you forward yeah. into new understandings. Okay. Um, <coughs> anybody else? Yes, sir. Okay, we've had uh, literature and history and we're trying to link it to Europe. Mm. Um, it would be nice if we had some definition of the latter thing, Europe. Uh, we have a political definition, which is Europe is the EU, basically, mm. with all our newspapers and mm. And there is the other definition, in fact, there are several definitions, but the one that is probably the simplest one, Europe as a territory, Europe as a continent. Europe is defined as the area between the Atlantic and the Euros, and between the Mediterranean and the North Pole. So is uh, Tchaikovsky, Stravinsky, Prokofiev, are they Europeans? Is that European music or is it somebody else's music? Because clearly they're outside the EU, and uh, there is a political thing that wants to keep Russia, and at one time Eastern Europe and Poland outside Europe. He's is Chopin. Uh, I presume he's European, but according to some definitions, uh, he wouldn't be. He's now that Poland is in the European Union. And obviously, these categories do play some role in institutions. Now, it all depends how you categorize them and how you link them. Mm. I noticed, by the way, that the Euro song, the song of Europe, now comes from Hazard.
Azerbaijan. Uh, <laughs> many of us would not have thought of their Europe, but maybe we have to get used to it, you know, to find out how big our continent is. Well, I, I, think, I think this is a really good question, and one of the points that the, the whole series of three years is to try and think about uh, Europe in this non-governance way. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. One of the, one of the issues is, isn't it, it's about the ways in which um, you know, Europe is a problem that takes Europe as a problem for itself. But I wonder if that's not true everywhere. I mean, we'll say America is a nation that takes America as, its, as a problem for itself. But that's one way of thinking about, you know, Europe is about European concerns and what's Europe and what's not Europe. And I suppose your example of the Eurovision Song Contest is a, is a, uh, a miniature and perhaps uh, rather, not ridiculous, but uh, 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 an interesting example, or not very aesthetically pleasing example is what I meant really, of the way in which, the way in which, um, way in which identity is, is constructed, say in terms of art, by building up bits of artworks, isn't it? So you build up a, a canon and you argue about you know, that European is you know, this cathedral and that long poem and this tapestry and you build a canon of things that allows you to sort of, of which you can then argue, decide what Europe is. But then um, there's a constant, yes, yeah, so I, I think my answer is it's very hard to it's, it's constantly in flux and constantly in debate. And I suppose I feel uncomfortable as a Bajan being in Europe, but on the other hand... Incidentally, Israel is often in the Yeah. Well, the, the, the Eurovision Contest, I remember when Israel first entered it, it's, it's a company called Eurovision. It's about the European vision, which is why it's called Eurovision. And I suppose there is a sense, isn't there, where lots of the world's invoked in a European vision. Franz Fanon says Europe is the place where uh, people spend all their time talking about men and all their time killing them. Um, so I just sort of... And again, but the Eurovision is in fact based on, on, on a continental basis. Oh. And uh, one good area to look at where things are continental is, in, is sport, European sport. Yeah. If you look at the European uh, football competition, European championship, you will find an Azerbaijan there. Mm. Um, uh, you will find that there are just three uh, European transcontinental countries. Russia is one, goes over to the end of the continent. Uh, Turkey and Kazakhstan. Uh, for it, it's interesting that Kazakhstan has decided that in the case of football, it is European, but in the case of basketball, not football, it, it, it plays in Asia. But it, and, so and, and, and again, you can... They have, they have a choice. We do have, however, the other issue, which uh, is, is probably a, a, an even bigger one. Uh, if you look at all the Atlantic Rim countries in Europe, I mean, all of them have had their empires uh, throughout the world. If you look at the populations around London and what they are, they are transcontinental, mm. right? So we have a lot of uh, now non-European influences uh, coming well, into Europe, and we need, need some definition there. But again, that's one of the things I think is very interesting, is it, about, about um, European nations, which is, you know, as soon as you start to say uh, something that, you know, the, the key works of European culture are you know, the Bible and Greek philosophy or something, something like that. As soon as you say it, it becomes exclusive of, of people who you know, live and born in, in South London or wherever it might happen to be. And that's one of the cost things about, about Europe being, being constantly changing and shifting and taking it the, itself, its identity, is, a, is an object for itself.
I mean, Derrida in that the other heading um, talks about how things are uh, Europe is full of states that are not identical with themselves, and I suppose I take I take that to mean something to do with migration and change. I'll just say something on, on that. Uh, the, the example Bob gave isn't any old example. There's uh, um, a long line of philosophers who have identified a distinctively Greek origin to Europe and, uh, and understand Europe as a, a spiritual configuration and not a territorial outline. And um, within that tradition, somebody Bob sort of quietly mentioned there without mentioning uh, Emmanuel Levinas when asked uh, said Europe is the Bible and the Greeks and this has this kind of exclusive character that you were concerned about or an ex excluding character but um, there are other ways of reading that which is that the gesture that belongs to the Greco-biblical heritage <coughs> is precisely one which moves out towards the other and so isn't about closing it I mean it may historically have, as Fanon say, says uh, consistently nearly cutting the throat of every other but, but uh, as it were the, the, the spiritual trajectory is, is um, being conceived by Levinas as having one of a, a certain kind of opening to yeah, the other I, and just to finish the thought though that some people will say well, we better not just say Bible and the Greeks. Uh, an alternative way of putting the point would be, has been said, uh, Greek, Christian, and beyond, where the beyond there doesn't mean everything that happens after or everything that could be thought of as outside, but inside that Greco-Christian or Judeo-Christian heritage is inside itself this movement to beyond itself. Yeah, I think, I think what worries me about that is that every time that Europe starts to identify itself, there almost always, I'm sorry to be so cynical, there always seems to be some ulterior motives. When Europe says it's Christendom in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, it says it's Christendom in order to exclude uh, a growing Jewish population and to, to resist the growing Ottoman Empire. So this is, that's already a, a based on exclusion. I think the Bible and the Greeks, which comes as sort of late 19th century idea, is also a sort of, it has an imperialistic history behind it too so it's a so I think it's a complicated well either I, I, it may be tricky but by the, the Europe isn't everywhere and so mm. uh, if it's not going to be everywhere then some things aren't in it yeah yeah
she's holding it. I think that one of the questions that Doug was asked, uh, it's very illuminating to answer that. Uh, Doug talked about how in Berlin, when he was giving tours, Berliners would come and talk to him about it. That's why he talked about how it was, and, and he talked about you know, history as a lived present. And I suppose one of the things about uh, Berlin as opposed to London, I'll come back in a second, is that because it's so constantly, or has been, in danger, the, 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 the inhabiting of memory, which we all do, is much more present all the time. Yeah, yeah. So that's always custody being seized up. Whereas in, in London, I think, there's a, uh, choose another city, uh, the, because it's not so much in danger, it doesn't flare up or it doesn't flare up so much. Although, of course, it is there all the time. And you walk past somewhere and you say, this is where the um, students were kettled, or you say this is where uh, this is Windrush Square, which celebrates a huge wave of migration. So you, there is a sort of um, memory geography. It, it doesn't rush up so much. So, the, 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 so my answer with the Walter Benjamin thing is to say that, that it's, it's moments when identity seems to be under well, identity and memory seem to be under threat or change or shift. That's when it flashes up. And that's when, it, that's when the, the living presence of it, which is always there, is more urgent. Does that make sense? That does make sense, but that does a further thing, isn't there? How does it relate to European governments and, and readiness? And I'm thinking of that bit where he's trying to describe, describe this kind of vigilance as a subjectivity, and he says it's something about being responsible beyond every limit fixed by an objective law. Yeah. Can I say something on that? On, on that which I, I mean, I think that there's a Levinasian resonance here in that idea of being towards a non-theological understanding of ourselves, um, which is where Levinas describes in an interview um, the horror of Stalinism and Nazism, which he thinks of as inseparable. That is, say. Uh, um, Nazism arises as the inseparable adversary to Stalinism, to communism. The horror of these is the, he says, the end of a certain Europe. And it's a, uh, what is that Europe? It's a Europe which can be characterized in terms of the idea of um, something which beyond moments of charity and goodness could produce out of itself a regime without evil. And that desire for a certain kind of telos for ourselves is that an end of the human in a regime without evil, that we could produce this in some, uh, in, in, in the, the, the Marxist ambition, um, that would be the teleological par excellence for us. The, and, 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 and I think that Levinas thinks of the uh, horror of Stalinism and Nazism as an absolute blow, which is the end of that kind of idea. And then the only sort of thing would be towards a conception of what it is to be a human being, which doesn't have that kind of historical telos. Now, whether 
Levinas provides that, I'm not so sure, but uh, your idea he's, of vigilance does seem to resonate with that. He's describing that then, as opposed to ascribing it to himself, I think. Oh, he says it's an, uh, 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 something that every European he thinks of in his generation would have undergone. An absolute loss. It's, a, it's a one where you had the promise of some kind of... Uh, no, I think what I meant was that... Overco the, overcoming of suffering. I don't think that his thought, even before the war, he would have thought that uh, evil was avoidable. Oh, it doesn't matter, so. Yes. Could you speak up a little bit? Part of its military flavour, vigil, it's got a religious yeah. flavour too, hasn't it? But it means not going, it means not going to sleep, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose one of the things, one of the paragraphs that I rewrote totally was one of the things that I think that Derrida tries to talk about in that long thing that I yeah. paraphrased is that is the sense of um, having a tiger by the tail. And one, once you once you have a tiger by the tail, once you're enmeshed in memory and you always already are, you can't let go. You can't say actually I don't care about Lithuanian fascists or the Muslim Brotherhood. You're constantly involved in it and you have to work out a way you have to work out a way to be in to be involved in it, which is either going to be teleological, which is you know, here's my programme, this is what we're going to do. Or if we are making this journey towards a non teleological understanding of ourselves, a, a way of being non teleologically teleologically involved in it. I don't know quite what that would look like, so I was trying to think about. Yeah. And I suppose also you know, one of the things Derrida's worrying about is, is, the, is the sense that, that even... Well, I don't... Sorry. Yeah, faithless arms. Is it, your, is it you know, you can't, you can't get off. There's no... Thank you. 
properly modern church next to it. I think they call it the lipstick and the pepper pot. So they've left the ruins of the old church that was bombed, and they've built a new one right next to mm. it. And also in Dresden, the, uh, the big dome church there was bombed, and they've rebuilt it, but they've used bricks partly from the one that was bombed. So it's this bright white church with black bricks all over it. And I thought it, that really encapsulates this idea of memory not being a beginning and an end, mm. but something that you have to look to every side of at the same time. Oh, I mean, I, mean, I don't know about that at all, or very, very little, but it seems to me even the few times, or little time I spent there, is that the, one of the things that characterises it is a terrible intensity of worrying about it, trying to find ways to, to engage exactly with that, and to have the, mem have the memory and, the, and the, like the, the Russian graffiti preserved in the Reichstag building. Um, and I suppose I wish that was more the case in London sometimes, about various things that London should remember. Slavery and empire and wars and so on. Because um, I guess one of the things that, in terms of European memory, isn't remembered enough is the, you know, Europe and its empires, I suppose. Uh, and is it only just now that the various Kenyans are going to sue the government for torture and mm, atrocity and during the Man Lao Rebellion? Yeah. I've attempted to look at memory literature and history and Buddhist writings and history. Obviously, nothing to do with Europe, but if you're looking for um, another direction mm. which might somehow feed back to yourself, why not? Oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, I'm going to have to bring it to an end there. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank all the people who participated in the, the three annual lectures, um, providing a really interesting forum for thinking about Europe and, for, uh, uh, and its limits. And um, now also particularly those to Bob, first of all, for putting it together, and finally for doing one yourself. Thanks, Bob.